Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 20, reading from verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day, He will be raised up. You know, I'm amazed. I've met people who tell me that Jesus really didn't know what He had come to do. And uh, this is pretty clear. This is foretold. Jesus tells His disciples. He describes to them in a fair amount of detail, in just a couple of sentences, how he's going to undergo a trial, a trial and be condemned to death, a religious trial by the Jews, and then he's going to undergo a civil trial, and they're going to end up mocking him and scourging him, and then they're going to crucify him, and on the third day he would be raised up. Jesus knew specifically what he was going to go through. And you see in verse 17 that it that he took the twelve disciples aside. Remember what we had covered in Matthew chapter 12, that after, after what had occurred in the rejection of Jesus, the third rejection of Jesus doing his messianic miracles, and he proclaimed upon the nation the, the unpardonable sin after they said, well, you're only able to do these messianic miracles because you are filled with demons. And that's when proclaimed upon them was the unpardonable sin. And he only spoke in parables after that event, except to his disciples. And his reasoning was, because it's for you to understand. This was very clear. This was not a parable that he spoke to them. So he pulled them aside and he spoke very clearly to them exactly what was supposed to take place. Now let's look in verse 20. And read on and get to the the main part of what we want to cover today. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So think of this scenario, and and this is spoken about in another one of the Gospels, and a very similar account is given but it says that the request was made by the two sons. So in other words, it was made by the two sons and the mother made this request of Jesus. And coming from a Jewish background, I think I understand this fairly well. This is a typical Jewish mother. She wants things to go very well for her sons, and she's already figured it out. So the typical thing is with a Jewish mother, you are going to be a doctor and you are going to be a lawyer. And, and this, is, this is programmed within the young people, what they are going to be. And the mother makes sure that all this happens. Whatever's needed, the mother's going to figure this thing out. If she has to 
you know, befriend the principal of the best private school in town. She's going to do it. She's going to work this thing out. And this is, this is the mother of the, the, of the sons of Zebedee. So this is James and John. So these were two of the disciples who were particularly close to Jesus. James, John, and Peter were the three disciples, for example, that Jesus took with him up to the transfiguration. These were his, of the twelve, these were the three, Peter, James, and John, who were really tight. So the mother of James and John, because the two of them were brothers, some people say that Jesus chose twelve disciples, one from each tribe, and that's not true at all. Not at all. There, There were several sets of brothers among them, for example. So it couldn't have been. But anyway... Uh, uh, she comes and she says, let's go ask the Lord that, that when he gets into his kingdom, that each of you rule right alongside him. One sitting on the right of him, one of you sitting on the left. And she had it all figured out who was going to be on the right and who was going to be on the left. This typical Jewish mother. Now, Jesus had already made a promise to them. If you look back in, in, in Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus had already told them, In verse 28, he said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he had already made a promise that the twelve of them were going to be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But that wasn't enough. She wanted to make sure that her two sons got the very best. I don't know if you have a mother like that, that that really, really wants the very best for you and wants to get everything set up for you. But that's how it was with James and John. And interestingly, James, if you remember, was the first of the twelve to be martyred. James was martyred very on in the early church. John, on the other hand, was was actually, actually lived a very long time, probably outlived all the others, of of the eleven others, and, and, um, he may well have, have uh, uh, lived to be over 100 years old. His, the, the gospel according to John was written really quite late. And remember, he was banished to this island of Patmos where he did the writing of, of um, uh, the book of Revelation. And so, uh, you see that, that uh, here the mother is coming and she says, Jesus says, what do you want? Because... She had come to make a request, and she says, Command in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. Now, she had a great deal of faith. She said, look, if you command it, it's going to happen. So just command it. And, you know, what she's doing is really not that bad. Because Jesus had actually told us to ask for things. He told us very specifically to ask for things. So, for example, in, in, in Matthew, you can, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 7. And, and, and Jesus' command there is actually, actually made quite clear. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask and that it may be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So what she's doing is she's taking him at his word. And she's going and she's saying, I'd like my sons to rule, one on this side and one on the other. And Jesus said to her, you don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. So the two sons indeed replied, yes, we can drink the cup that you're about to drink. And Jesus said, my cup you shall drink. Now that cup meant the very cup of suffering. And James was about to experience that cup of suffering not at all long after Jesus' death and resurrection. James was about to experience that cup of suffering. John also experienced quite vividly that cup of suffering where he was banished and he was, he was uh, set out. So John experienced that as well. And Jesus agrees with them. He says, My cup you shall drink in Matthew chapter 20, verse 23. But to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now Jesus says very specifically, this is not something that I am here to give. This is something that the Father himself will give and will decide on. That's a very clear answer. He never got upset with them. He never reproved this mother. But what happened is the other disciples got upset. You know, they saw what was going on. And they saw this mother trying to set up her two sons to essentially be over them. You know, so you, you had the other ten disciples looking at this thing and saying, uh-oh, maybe we should have asked for this. And it says in verse 24, And on hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We covered this in detail last week, that service is the way to be brought up in the kingdom of God. It is service, it is service. It is the way to be brought up. Let me share with you again, as explicitly as I can. If you, in your life, feel that I will attend church and I'll go on Sunday and that's my part and that's the work that I'll do, you will not excel much in the things of God. And your children may well end up drifting away from the Lord because they'll see your lackluster sort of response to the Lord in service. However, if you become an integral part of the body of Christ, an integral part of service in the body of Christ, learning what it means to fellowship with, an, with another, learning how to enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit with other people, learning how to communicate to the leadership of the church and having a relationship with them such that they can speak into your life, most people in churches have no relationship with the pastorate or with the authority or with the Bible study leader or with things where people can speak into their life and those people know nothing about what's going on. The, the leadership knows nothing about what's going on with, with, with the people there. And so there's no avenue for people to speak into a life. I know Roger, for example, the associate pastor, so well. He and I will always stop and talk and how are things going, what's happening in this situation. And we'll meet together every few months for lunch just to talk, to see how things are going. I want to lay before him my concerns for this class, for this ministry. I want to meet with my pastor, which I do several times a year for lunch, meet with Pastor Landrum. 
and I ask them for input concerning the class. And most of the time, it's just keep doing what you're doing. But I want him to know that I am submitted to him. It's important for me that I submit to him this class that I communicate to him what's happening with my children, what's happening with my life, what's happening at work with me. This sort of relationship is that I acknowledge that he is the head in this body of Christ. And I'm submitting this class to him. And then I will serve within the community here in this class. This is my work of service in the body of Christ. And I take it very seriously. This is where my prayers go for this class. My prayer goes out for for the people in this class, that God would move on the hearts. And it is in this sort of thing that it keeps us close to the Lord. You cannot remain close to the Lord and be out of fellowship with the body of Christ. You say, well, I read my Bible every day. You will not. You will stop reading your Bible every day if you don't have that close communion. How much more explicit would you like me to be? Is this clear enough? If you don't participate with the body of Christ in your lives, you will fall away from the faith. You may not deny that you're a Christian, but you'll fall away from having any substantive difference between you and the people of this world. There will be no substantive difference. And if people hear you're a Christian, they'll go, you're a Christian? I didn't know that. Rather than, I knew something was different about you. If you want to have your walk sustained in your life, you become an integral part of the body of Christ. Where you serve in a capacity where if you're not there, your service is missed. If you don't show up on a Sunday, your service is missed. If you don't show up in your class, your service is missed. If it's not missed, then you're not serving enough. Now, your service may be with a local campus group in, in Campus Crusade or InterVarsity where you're giving your time to that. That's okay. But there must be a service in the body of Christ. I think it's also good for young people to uh, learn to attend a church and learn to be a part of the church community because as soon as you get done with school, you know what happens? IV is not there in your face all the time and Bible studies right there in your house. You know, right down the hallway, there's 18 Bible studies going on that you can attend. And it's like, oh, I've really made an effort to walk 12 feet and attend this. So I hope you feed me well tonight. No, you have to make a different sort of expression to get out there and to be a part of the body of Christ when it's no longer in your own home. And you learn to relate to the body of Christ. This is important for the Christian community. It's important to the body of Christ. It's important to you as a believer. You must become a part. And this is how you become great. Your service here at this phase in your life sets up for you who you will marry in the future. You say, well, how? It will set up who you will marry because if you learn to serve in the body of Christ, what God is going to do, He is going to bring in your life someone who is equally selfless in giving. And then you can marry a selfless person rather than a selfish person. It will affect who you marry. If you learn how to serve in the body of Christ, young ladies, men will see that and they will be drawn to that attitude of service in your lives. 
Young men, you learn to serve in the body of Christ. Young women will see that attitude of service and be drawn to you. Young women who appreciate and understand service. You know, people say, you know, where should I find a girl? And I say, certainly not in the bar. Or else you're going to find a barmaid. And you're going to see what selfishness really is. But what happens is, if you learn to serve in the body of Christ, and become an integral part of the church community. You find your wife in the church. This is where I found my wife. We met in the church. So already, we had the same pattern of worship, the same values around Christian atmosphere and Christian worship we already had. You speak to many couples, and there is great friction in the home as to how they should raise their kids as believers. There has never been that difference in our home. We've had our differences. But when it came to how we raise our children and in the Christian community and the importance of being a part of the body of Christ and serving every Sunday, there was never, never that question. My wife was a servant and I could see that in the body of Christ. It never scared her to do dishes in the church. never scared her a bit to do dishes. And I saw that. And I was attracted to that. As you learn to serve, you will be rewarded. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You learn to serve. If you do not, if all you do is come to church on Sunday and think you're doing your part by getting on a bus and coming here, whoop, whoop, you're not going to get much. You will get commensurately back. That's what you will get. That's as explicit as I can be. Verse 29 of Matthew, chapter 20. And as they were leaving for Jericho, a large crowd followed them. And two blind men, sitting by, the, sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. We learn from another one of the Gospels where, where, where Actually, this account is, is, is spoken of in, in, in uh, uh, other, other Gospels as well. And it says one of the blind men's name was Bartimaeus. And in fact, it says, as they were leaving Jericho. If you look in the other Gospels, it says, as they were going to Jericho. And, and all the theologues of the world say, you see that? There's, there, there's differences in the Bible. The Bible's not accurate. No, the Bible is very accurate. This passage has never bothered scholars. Actually, in that day, there were two Jerichos. There was an old Jericho and a new Jericho, two separate cities that were very close, within several hundred yards of each other. And you can actually see the remains of those today. There's, there, there's a Jericho and then there's the old Jericho. And even in that day, there were the two Jerichos. And they were leaving one and going to the other. And that's how you could be leaving Jericho or coming to Jericho and still see the same event. And so, you know, whenever people say to me, the Bible is full of contradictions, I say, show me three. Show me three. 
And then they go, blah, 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 blah. And they say, no, no, you're going to have to show me three here. You said it's full of contradictions. That should mean whatever page I turn to, you can find something. Because it's full of them, right? Show me three. And they can show you none. And if they have a contradiction, I guarantee you, it's something like this that is almost meaningless that theologians have well figured this out. So it's not full of contradictions. Um, It's just that there are liars who say it's full of contradictions, but they don't know. So, it says that there were two blind men sitting by the road, and they heard Jesus was going by. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So there's these two blind men. Hearing that Jesus is going by, there's a large crowd going by with him. They don't know how to get to him, so they're crying out. Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It says, it says, and the crowd sternly warned them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. The crowd sternly warned them. So that's not like, shh, 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 be quiet, be quiet. It's like, would you guys just shut up? Just stop bothering the Lord. He's a busy guy. You know, he's got to talk to Pharisees and stuff. You know, he's got, <laughs> there's a bunch of scribes waiting to, to question him, and he's, He's about to bury them theologically. No. They say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Remember what we had just read in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. The main reason why we don't receive is because we don't ask. Keep your finger right there in that chapter. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Shortly after Hebrews, if you can find Hebrews, just pass that a bit and you'll, you'll end up, end up uh, uh, finding James. James chapter 4, reading from verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see that? You do not have because you do not ask. The primary reason why our prayers are not answered is because we don't pray. You say, but God never answers my prayer. Well, how much do you pray? How persistent have you been in prayer? Well, I, you know, I, I once asked God for it. Well, you're going to have to be more persistent than that. The main reason why we do not receive answers to prayer is because we do not ask. And the world, and even the disciples, the Christian community as they were soon going to be called, was telling them to shut up and stop bothering the Lord with their little problem. Uh, Like, it's a little problem for you, but I'm blind. (laughs) And they're telling him to be quiet. As if Jesus has something more important than their blindness to deal with. And it says that when they are told to be quiet, they cry out all the louder, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And remember what I told you before. As soon as we become hard against somebody, Jesus becomes merciful toward them. So much so, if you want Jesus to become merciful toward somebody, become hard against them and Jesus will become merciful. He always goes for the underdog. So Jesus must have been hearing this through the crowd because He's God. He can hear everything. But as soon as the crowd rebukes, and in fact in the other Gospels it says the disciples, 
even rebuked them. The disciples didn't say, oh, you poor blind fellows, come, let me bring you to my master. They were telling him to be quiet. I mean, Jesus is too busy for you. As soon as Jesus hears that they're telling these people to be quiet, Jesus said, bring them to me. And it says in the other Gospels, it says that Bartimaeus threw his cloak off and went toward Jesus. Now a blind man doesn't throw his cloak off in a crowd unless he thinks something's really going to happen, like he's not going to be blind anymore. And then Jesus says to him something very profound in verse 32. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And their reply was, oh, praise God, we have met you. God bless you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How wonderful you are. How magnificent you are, O Lord. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. How wonderful you are, O Lord. What a great God you are. How merciful you are, O Lord. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? When he says, what do you want me to do for you? They said, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Jesus says, fine. Boom. They're open. So often, we think that let's go to prayer and let's worship God for 42 hours and never ask God for anything. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The main reason why we don't receive is because we don't ask. That's what, Jesus, that's what James said. The main reason is you don't receive because you don't ask. Think about your prayer life. Think about my prayer life. And I stand condemned. How much do I really cry out and ask God for? Will I believe Him for my life, for my career, for each phase? You, in your life, and I have seen this in my own life, if you will ask God to bless your career, to bless your life, and use you as a blessing, He will gladly answer that. You say, well, that's selfish. Uh, I think it's selfish to ask for your own eyesight. You should be asking for someone else's eyesight. Come on, don't be so selfish. I mean, for goodness sake, ask Him about your career. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart in Psalm 37. You don't even know the desire of your heart. I didn't know the desire of my heart. I prayed to God to bless my career and I'm telling you, I am one of the very few Americans that has a job that I absolutely love. I love going to the office. It's therapeutic for me. I mean, Shireen knows it. If I'm getting antsy at home, she says, go to, go to the office. Because then I'm going to be happy. I love my office, and I just go there and I, you know, I give the graduate students orders. And I just, you know, just, people start jumping and listening to me. Totally different than in the home. I give the kids orders and they do just the opposite. And I said, at least I go to the office and people listen to me. I have a job that I love. You know, and, and, and I really respect physicians. Well, I somewhat respect physicians, but I'm so glad I'm not one of them. I'm so glad I didn't go to medical school. The university is a much kinder and gentler place. I'm so glad I didn't go into business. Not that business is bad. God knew the desires of my heart long before I ever knew it. And I prayed to God and God knew what would fulfill me and He blessed. And I never, never imagined that I would get to where I am. You say, well, you must have been always a brain and really smart. I wasn't. I really wasn't. My kids get all bummed out when they get a B. I said, look, I was happy when I got a B. Because most of my grades were lower than that. 
I mean, they're, ha- they're all bummed out because they get one B, and the rest are all A's. I wasn't there. If I got a B, I thought that was really good. C for me was average. You know, you have D and F, you have A and B, so C is average. And that was actually before the time of great inflation. But um, God has brought me much further than I ever could have imagined. I will go to the chapel on campus and ask God specifically to bless this proposal that I'm writing. Give me the hands of a scribe and bless it. And grant me favor in the eyes of the reviewers, the people who will be reviewing it. There is no harm in learning how to cry out to God. Generally, we don't ask because we don't receive. And you know what happens? The world says, don't ask. The world says, be quiet, Jesus is too busy for you. And you cry out all the more and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you will hear these people who know nothing about the Word of God and says, oh, you should spend more time asking for other people than for yourself. I I don't know. How about equal time? You ask God to work in your life. There's enough garbage and enough dirt in my life that I have to ask God a lot for a lot of help. God, guard my heart, guard my tongue, guard my attitude. Have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Heal my blindness. And the world says, stop. And they say, stop praying. And the testimony of Scripture is, you receive by prayer. You receive by asking. Let's look at at, at chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. Reading from verse 1. And when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethlehem, Bethpage at the Mount of Olivet. Then Jesus said to the two disciples, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, saying to the daughter of Zion, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. So Jesus sends two disciples, he says, Look, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I've got to go riding into Jerusalem on a colt. The colt of a donkey. And so, he says, you go down there and you're going to find a donkey tied there. And next to the donkey is going to be the colt. You go on untied. And if anybody asks about it, just say the Lord has need of it. Now, remember, in in Texas you get shot for being a horse thief. All right? And I'm sure back then you didn't just go and take somebody else's donkey along with the colt. This, this is also reported in Mark and in Luke. And between the two accounts, it, it, it says that there were bystanders and they said, why are you taking the donkey and the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they were granted permission. And then in Luke it says, and the owner saw them, was among those bystanders, and granted them permission to take it. So here are two total strangers come up and start untying, you know, get in somebody else's car and start driving it away. And the owner says, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. You say, take it. The world, in addition to telling us not to pray, tells us not to trust expectantly on the Lord. I have seen this sort of thing happen in my own life. 
One day I was witnessing, I was a student, and I was sharing on campus in, in the student center, and I was sharing the gospel with one young lady there on campus. And we had gone out two by two, and two of us were sharing with this young lady. And I had, and she was apparently really stirred in her heart, and I asked her what was wrong, and she said that her brother, just the day before, two days before, had fallen off the roof of their house and broken his neck, and he was paralyzed. And so I said, I'd like to go and pray for him. And so she told me what hospital he was in. And it was like 9.30 at night in the middle of the winter. And so I walked over to the hospital, which is a few miles from campus. And he was in intensive care. And it was after hours. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get in? And I said, well, Lord, you open the door. And, and, you know, I was just a college student. I I didn't walk around in a tie and act, you know, look professional or look like a doctor or something. At the... Kind of like you, but worse. And and uh, and I remember at the nurses station they said, uh, uh, "This is intensive care. Are you family?" I said, "No, the Lord sent me." She said, "That's good enough." And boom, I was right in praying for the guy. <laughs> there were there's a missionary I know, a very bold guy, and this was this was back during during when when the Iron Curtain was still up and and. Russia had all these satellite countries, and he would go through and he would share the gospel. And so he had come back, and we were talking. He says, yeah, I wanted to get into this one Soviet bloc nation, and I needed a visa. I said, well, how'd you get a visa to go in there? He says, so we, there were, he says, there were two of them. They went, and they went to the office. They said, we'd like a visa to, to, to uh, uh, proceed on in. They said, no visas will be issued. And gave him his passport back. He took his passport, he said, and he shoved it back. He says, I want a visa to go in. And he says, the man shoved it back. No visas are being issued. He shoved it back again. He said, I want a visa. The man shoved it back again. He says, he shoved it again. He says, we want visas to get in. The man took his passports and shut the gate for the day. And so here they were without passports, and the gate was shut. They came back the next day. They said that their passports were in the office. They wanted their passports. They said, we don't know anything about it. He says, please check. Our passports are here. So the man went back and checked, got their passports, handed it to them, handed them the passports. They opened it up. They've both been stamped with entrance visas. These things happen when you serve God, when you look for God expectantly. Another thing I ha- that happened, I was a college student. Shireen and I, we were, I was in graduate school. Um, she had come to visit, and, and uh, uh, she had come to visit my home, I think it was right around Christmas time. And then she had to catch a flight back to Syracuse. And I was with my family and my brother-in-law. And I said, let's go to the airport. There was an, there was an airline that none of you will remember because it was around only before you were born. It was called People, People Express Airlines. Do you remember People Express? People Express, it was, it was a really cheap airline. What you would do is you would, you would go to the airport. You would get on the airplane. As it's in the air, you pay them. And, you know, it was like $30 to fly from, like, Indiana to New York. It's really cheap, $39 type fares. All open seating, and you would pay on the airplane. You had to pay cash or, or, uh, or check. And, and um, so anyway, so, or, or cash or credit card, you had to pay on the airplane. And you, you would call up and you would make a reservation and they would write your name down. And then if you, know, if you weren't there 30 minutes before the flight, you could get on whoever was there. And so we had no reservation. She had to fly from New York City to Syracuse. And I remember I was with my sister and my brother-in-law and I said, they said, does she have a reservation? I said, no. They said it was full. But I really feel the Lord's going to open the door. And my brother-in-law said to me, don't you think God 
lets the airlines take care of this sort of thing. I said, no, I, I understand, but I really feel like, like she's going to get on this flight. And we get to the airport, and as we're, as we're going through the airport, I hear this announcement that says, People Express Airlines flight boarding for Syracuse. And I said, let's get over to that flight. He says, what flight? I said, that People Express Airlines, that flight boarding for Syracuse. He says, what flight? I said, they just announced it. He says, I didn't hear anything. I said, I am sure. I just heard it. They're leaving at such and such a gate. And this was back in the days you didn't have to have a boarding pass to get through the gate. You'd go to the gate. Nobody stopped you. It was before 9-11. It was long before 9-11. So we, we go to the gate, and they say it's all filled up. I said, we'll, we'll put her on the standby list. They said, our standby list is very long. I said, just put her at the bottom then. And then just before the plane was to leave, they said, there's one seat in the back. And they said, sure enough. And then she was on. God does things like this. I have many examples of this in my life, even when I was a college student. In fact, more when I was a college student than now, because now I'm too sophisticated. Then I learned how to just trust in God, just dependent on Him. Now I just go there and I say, I'm, you know, Joe Professor and doors open. (laughs) But there was a time when I had to depend all the more. The world says, don't depend on God. And the testimony of Scripture is, when you're walking in God's way, He opens doors for you. The world says, don't pray. And God says, pray. The world says, don't expectantly look for God. And God says, expectantly look for me and see what's going to happen. And then the final thought, in the same portion, it says, in verse 7 of, of Matthew chapter 21, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and the crowds going ahead of him. And those followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling the doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you're making it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, Do you hear what these children are saying? They said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. And have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. And the other two Gospels report the same thing, that as Jesus was coming in, people were singing praises. And the Pharisees were saying, tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop singing praises like that about you. Jesus said, if they don't stop, if they stop, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. The world comes and the world says, don't pray. The world says, don't wait expectantly on the Lord. And the world says, don't worship Him. The world tells us, don't worship Him. And Jesus says, go ahead, worship. Go ahead and worship. We are told not to worship the Lord. Remember the first time I brought my mother to church with me. Brought her to this church with me. And so, so I grew up in a, in a Jewish family. I became a believer at the age of 18. I was about 19 years old. And I brought my mother to, a ch- to the church with me. And... And uh, uh, as was the normal practice in my life and in that church was we got down on our knees and we spent a long time in worship. And and that's how the the worship experience was on Sunday mornings for us in that church. 
And if, if some of you go to international churches, you, you, you know that pattern. And uh, uh, so my mother, of course, didn't get down on her knees, but she saw me get down on my knees and she saw people praising God and everything. And she started weeping, just started weeping. And after the service, I said to her, I said, you must have been really touched by the service. She says, touched? She says, I'm crying because I can't believe my son is on his knees saying these things. That's the way she felt. I mean, my mother's always been dead honest. I mean, she's just, just, just always frank with people and tells her what she thinks. You ever seen that in anyone else? But <laughs> she told me exactly what she thought. But now she's a believer. And now she gives glory to God and praise to God. But the world will tell us not to do this. I said, so where would you rather I be on a Sunday? She said, I'd rather you be out on the beach like any normal human being on a Sunday afternoon. And so uh, uh, the world tells us not to do these things. And Jesus says, go ahead and worship. Go ahead and experience the life of worship in the church. The world says it's not important. The world says, be quiet. Don't worship the Lord like this. And Jesus says, go ahead. Worship the Lord. Go ahead. Wait expectantly on Him. Go ahead and learn how to pray. The exact opposite of what the world tells us, the exact opposite of what feeble believers tell us, is exactly what we should be doing. And the Lord opens the door, and what He does is He allows us to receive sight in our blind eyes. He allows us to see His hand move supernaturally in our lives. And He allows us the joy of the worship experience in knowing the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for these young people, for what You've done in their lives. And I pray, Father, that You would so work in their lives that they would learn how to pray. That they wouldn't have to go without receiving because they've never asked. And they would ask for their own lives and for their careers that they could then glorify God through their lives. Father, I pray that their lives would be a glory to God. Father, I ask that You would cause them to walk in service to You. That they would learn to serve in the body of Christ and become an integral part with the Christian community. And Father, I pray that they would learn how to wait expectantly for You, seeking Your face, asking You to intercede supernaturally on their lives and the lives of others around them. And Father, I pray that they would learn what the worship experience it is. Learning how to come before You and praise You and worship You. Learning about the worship experience in the church. How to give praise and honor to You that their minds wouldn't just be all over, but they would be set on worshiping You. That Jesus would be glorified in their lives. Father, I pray You do a work through these young people. And I ask Your mercies on them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.